Welcome to NCSA's second webinar of the season. Very happy to have you here. Um, if you missed our first webinar, it was excellent with Allison Singer and Craig Snyder talking about the Autism Cares Act and its reauthorization. Um, the link to that recording is on our homepage and on our webinar page at ncsautism.org. Today, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is the increasing prevalence of autism. I think it is probably one of the most important, maybe the most important issue in all of autism. Um, and um, I have a couple of uh, introductory remarks <laughs> before we head into this. First of all, um, we said that this webinar would be two hours long. We're going to try very, very hard to keep it much shorter, more like maybe 75 minutes. So FYI, we're going to try to keep it much faster. Um, and um, I will speak first. I have about 40 intricate slides. <laughs> then Dr. Zaharadni will speak second, um, speaking specifically about um, findings in New Jersey. Um, we will record this, as you know, and um, if you have to step out, if you have to go do something, that's fine. We will post this on our website um, at the conclusion of this, probably this evening. Um, now, um, there will be open Q&A at the end. So please, if you have questions, um, type them into the Q&A box. You can feel free to use chat, but I'm probably not going to be monitoring chat. So Q&A is the way to go. And we'll take as many questions as we possibly can. Uh, before I start, I'd like to introduce my co-presenter, Dr. Walter Zaharadny. Um, Dr. Zaharadny is Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Rutgers University in New Jersey. He is Director of the Autism Study there. He's an expert in childhood development and has been lead investigator for the, C for the CDC's Autism and Developmental Disability Network or ADDM network um, site in New Jersey since 2000. We're absolutely thrilled to have him. Um, so Dr. Zaharadni, um, unless you want to chime in on my slides, um, I'm going to put you on mute and um, we will visit you after I'm done. So thank you so much for being here. So um, let me move on, hold on. So my part, I, I'm, I must say, even though Dr. Zaharadni is far smarter than I am, <laughs> far more qualified than I am, I'm actually going to take up about 40 minutes of your time, not because I'm, you know, like the level of Dr. Zaharani, but because I span so much more territory. He's talking about New Jersey. I'm going to talk about the United States. I'm going to talk about California. I'm going to talk about international studies. I'm going to talk about certain specific studies. It's just going to take more time. So thank you for indulging me on that. I also want to say that today, um, most of what I talk about really represents the work I do as a private philanthropist through the Escher Fund for Autism. I'm also the president of National Council on Severe Autism. I'm also past president and current secretary of Autism Society San Francisco Bay Area. But really, the focus here today emanates mostly from the work I do through the Escher Fund for Autism. And um, I only speak for myself. I don't necessarily speak for any other entity um, with which I'm associated. Okay, we're going to start off because I can't see you. <laughs> Obviously, I'm here at my desk in San Jose, California. Um, and um, I have a little folks, I want to learn a little bit about you. 
All right, hopefully you see this. Um, if everyone could take this poll and uh, let me know your answer. Has there been a true increase in autism rates in your opinion? Um, no, autism's always been here, but hiding under their labels. Yes, but most of the increase is due to changes in awareness. Yes, the majority of the increase is real, or you don't know, or none of the above. Ooh. Coming fast and furious. All right, almost all of you have participated. Let me give you a few more seconds to read through these. All right, counting five, four, three, two, one. I am going to end the poll. See what we learned. So what we see is that 70% um, of you think that the great majority of the increase is real and that many more kids have this mental disorder than ever before. Uh, about a quarter of you, 24%, say yes, most of the but most of the increase is due to things like awareness and diagnostic changes. So I'd say uh, almost all of you think the increase is at least partially real. 3% um, of you say, no, there's no increase in autism, and 3% don't know. So thank you. Um, it's good to know who we're talking to. I wish I could see your faces and see you in person, but that's what we get. Okay, moving on. So I'm gonna start with um, a few definitions. Uh, what is uh, prevalence? What's birth year prevalence? What's incidence? What's caseload? If you're in epidemiology or you're dealing with administrative data, all of these things mean different things. So prevalence means you know, a portion of the population that has a condition, like what's the prevalence of obesity? What's the prevalence of schizophrenia? Um, and that might not pertain to a specific age. It might be across many, many ages. Birth year prevalence refers, is, is more specific than prevalence because it refers to people in a birth year that have a condition. This is the most important metric when trying to figure out time trends in autism, and I will largely focus on birth year prevalence, although sometimes dabble in some other measures. Incidence, you don't have to worry too much about that. I don't really talk about it, but it usually, it, it means different things to, to different epidemiologists, depending on what paper you read. Uh, but it could mean um, the rate of newly identified cases, or it could mean, it could be kind of confused with prevalence. Um, the, the incidence of cases, but because autism occurs before birth, it's not like, you know, influenza that you get you know, later in life. Um, prevalence is by far the more important indicator. Caseload is really an administrative term um, that has to do with like the number of like autism cases in a particular system in a particular time. It doesn't necessarily relate to prevalence. And I will talk about that later. Um, I have a couple of slides touching on caseload. So this talk really has um, four, no, five sections. First, I'm going to talk about um, historic autism data and more compare it to more recent data. I'm then going to go into U.S. and California data specifically. Third, I'm going to go over some international data. Fourth, I'm going to talk about a couple of studies that people like to reference when they say that there's no true increase in autism. And I'm going to explain why those studies by no means whatsoever show that there's no true increase in autism. 
finally, um, I'm going to talk about a hypothesis that could help finally make sense of some, uh, at least some of this increase. Okay, so five sections. So here you can see an overview of studies conducted on autism prevalence, and specifically I'm relating it to birth years, um, before the 1990s. So you can see, um, you know, 1965, you know, 0.01% in Wisconsin, um, North Dakota, 0.03%, Utah, 0.04%. Um, this is a huge project. This was like a 20,000 um, children born in hospitals in the East Coast between these years. And when they used a very expansive definition of autism, it was 0.064%. That included cases like, you know, schizophrenia, um, you know, uh, you know, people with um, IQs um, above 70, um, not just those with intellectual disability. Um, here in California, in our developmental disability services system, it was about 0.04% in 1980. And you see some similar things. Minnesota, if you jump over to Europe, you see you know, pretty similar numbers um, from you know, births 1955, 1980, 1981. But now if you fast forward to births in the 2000s and in the 2010s, you see sharply higher numbers. And everybody knows, CD, this is the most famous one, CDC, ADDM overall most recently found 2.76% estimated autism prevalence for eight-year-olds. Um, those were, they were born in 2012, 4.3% um, of boys, by the way. Um, a couple of other ADDM sites, just more specifically, you can see there's some variation. Maryland has a little bit lower. Minnesota has a little bit higher. California had, which is a, a site in Northern San Diego County, had a sharply higher rate. One thing you do notice, however, is they had a lower rate with intellectual disability, which might explain um, that maybe they were in fact capturing a lot more of people with very, your children with mild um, autism. This is so far pretty much unexplained, but it's an exception, uh, exceptional number. So um, I pointed out now, if you go to um, other countries, again, looking at about the same birth years, 20,000s, 2010s, um, you can see, you know, we're, we're really kind of honing in around 3%. Like if you were to take every, everybody and kind of take all these studies and mush them together, you, you'd find something like 3%. Um, uh, you know, Japan, 3.26%. Um, Israel's is lower. And I, I deleted this slide, but something that's really, really interesting is what they found in Israel is that the secular population in Israel has sharply higher autism rates than the um, Israeli Arab population or the ultra-Orthodox population. So this number is sort of con a conflation of all of those, but they see very different trends among among the different subpopulations in Israel, which is super interesting. Um, I'm going to not talk about, I'm gonna talk about some of these later. Okay, so if we compare the pre-1990 births, those rates, which I'm gonna say is about 0.05%, because that's a decent average, to the more recent studies, right? 
we can kind of figure out how much has autism increased, at least according to these studies, over time. And this is about 22 years, birth years apart. So we see a 20-fold increase if we compare the 0.05% from before 1990-ish to the ADDM network, CDC's own numbers, restricted to autism with intellectual disability. And that's important because we know that we're comparing at a minimum, this is very conservative, apples to apples. If we, and it's, by the way, this 0.05 rate did include um, IQs above 70. So those without intellectual disability in the vast majority of cases. But nevertheless, if we're gonna be super, super conservative and just compare it to today's rates of autism with intellectual disability, you see a 20 fold increase, which is a massive increase for very serious mental disability under any measure. Now, if we're a little more liberal and we compare it to all the ADDM, so 2.76%, right, our, our last CDC number, that's a 55-fold increase. So what I think is the truth probably lies somewhere between these two poles, somewhere between a 20-fold increase in autism and a 55-fold increase in autism. There has never been any data produced to suggest that that is not the case, by the way, and we will get into that. I do have to note something important, which is we've been talking about you know, relatively wealthy countries. The epidemiological studies looking at countries that are lower income, maybe less industrialized, do show um, very significantly lower rates of autism. These are just Four examples. Um, they tend to be a 1% or well under 1%. Um, I didn't put you know, all of them on here, but you know, they're all kind of in this ballpark. Okay, this slide is going to drive you crazy, and I'm very sorry for it. Um, it is uh, I, I tried really hard to figure out a way to visualize this for everybody. I think it's really important to have a visual representation for what this increase looks like over time if we combine these prevalence studies all on one page. Okay, so here we go back to 1943. For those of you who are autism history aficionados, um, you will know that is when Kanner, um, Leo Kanner published his paper describing this infantile autism thing. And, um, you know, it really, you know, because it was, it was considered very, very, very rare. It wasn't really studied. Um, finally, Treffert in the mid 19, well, yeah, he was looking in mid 1960s with his ascertainment, as I recall. Um, he looked at the state of Wisconsin. He found about 0.01%. The data could be interpreted a little bit higher. Again, we talked about this collaborative perinatal project, which looked at about 20,000 births or so um, in the East Coast in East Coast hospitals, again, you know, finding 0.064-ish percent. Um, a study in North Dakota, 0.03%. A study in Utah, 0.04%. Um, a study in Minnesota, um, or no, oh, well, that's California DDS. Um, again, just a little bit higher. Uh, California DDS, again, a pretty narrow a dis a developmental disability um, definition of autism, about the same. So basically, through the 1980s, 
we are seeing pretty low rates of autism. There, there isn't any data anywhere to suggest anything higher than that. But then what we do see is right here, probably, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that's when we see the, this increase, this regular, like shockingly regular increase over time. So there are all these arrows and all these <laughs> acronyms and you guys are going like, what are all these acronyms? What are all these arrows? Basically, what I show here is this is California Developmental Services data. That's the kind of the low part here. And you can see the increase in prevalence over time compared to the US CDC ADDM network, which shows a higher increase over time. This is to be expected because California's disability services system employs a much more restrictive definition of autism. It's not just that you have autism, it's that you have autism that rises to the level of a significant developmental disability with you know, certainly certain defined impairments. So this is what you would expect. And if you just look at that California DDS data, you can see an increase in prevalence from 0.042 in 1980 births to 1.47 to, to 2014 births. That's a 35 fold increase, which by the way, fits very nicely in the paradigm I just shared a few slides ago, somewhere between 20 and 55 um, fold increase over you know 30-ish years. Um, so, one thing I'm not going to do is talk about every single thing on the slide <laughs> and every single source, but it will be in the recording. I really encourage you to go look at some of this um, original data and um, you get a better understanding of it for yourself. I do want to say here at the end, um, a different CDC measurement. This was a survey. This is not active case finding. It was a survey of families found um, over 3% of um, children have autism. It is not as reliable a measure, however, as CDC ADDM. Okay, now let's go to California's caseload. Again, this isn't prevalence. This is the number of cases in a given year. This is a different metric, but this is a really interesting metric to use to kind of understand where we are historically. So California had basically like almost no autism cases, about 3,000 autism cases in the 80s. Today, we are reaching almost 180,000 autism cases in our developmental services system. And I wanna say that again, 3,000 cases to, we're again, nearing 180,000 cases today. It is an absolutely shocking, enormous increase that has never been explained. In fact, every single time, um, people in the state or researchers have gone back into the data to try to explain this. They have not been able to do that. But what's kind of remarkable to me as somebody who's a pretty active at autism advocate in this country is I look at, you know, the national, the founding of the National um, uh, Autism uh, Association for Autism Research, Cure Autism Now, Autism Speaks. We have 2006, the Combating Autism Act. Nothing bent the curve. <laughs> Nothing is really helping to prevent autism, reduce autism in our population. In fact, we've seen quite the opposite. We've seen a tremendous surge, even in 
a system that is solely devoted to those with very significant disability. Um, what And of course, Neurotribes, which is amazing to me, I've written about Neurotribes a couple of times already. It was a book that denied any true increase in autism. It was published in 2015 without any data to actually show there's been no increase in autism. And it's absurd how much influence Neurotribes and some of its other kind of follow on books have had on autism discourse without any empirical data to back up their claims. Um, so you can see that we've, people say, oh, well, this is good news. You often see autism speaks. They're often saying this is great news that we have this increase in autism. It is a result of awareness. No, in this system, it's not awareness. In this system, you have to have very significant developmental disability to be included. And in fact, in 2003, California was so alarmed by the increase in autism that they saw in the 1990s that they enacted more stringent entry criteria to get into the DDS system. And this is just a little slide. I'm here in Santa Clara County um, in California, just to show you how dramatic the increase in autism has been between 1990 and 2022. We've seen, at least in this county, 33-fold caseload growth. And when I, I'm very, as again, I, I was president of Autism Society San Francisco Bay Area. I think I've talked to like, I don't know, 50 different service providers over the years. And they all tell me the same thing. You know, in the 80s, you know, even early 90s, they saw very few autism cases. There were very few autism classrooms. Um, it was, people didn't even know what autism was in 1990. And today we have, actually it's much higher than this now, because this is 2022. And we have countless autism programs, schools, you know, everybody's bursting at the seams. Our adult programs cannot handle the influx of new autism cases. Okay, so let's shift back to the CDC. Um, this is, uh, everybody knows this graph because this is the uh, 20 years of surveillance that they've done on eight-year-olds at sites throughout the United States. Uh, of course, as we talked about before, the number is now 2.76%, which is one in 36, 4.3% of boys. And for the first time, more than 1% of girls, which is really scary. And by the way, this high male to female sex bias probably the most durable, consistent finding in all of autism epidemiology over decades of research. It has still never been solved. We, no one understands why this is happening, um, but it is seen across, across the world and across time. Um, another thing that's kind of interesting here is there was a change, and Dr. Zaharani is going to talk about this, a change in methodology between um, surveillance years 2016 and 2018. We also see a change here. We talked about this high rate in California, which might account for part of this, you know, really significant increase. Um, and we're also seeing um, more diagnoses um, of people in lower SES and in uh, minority groups, which Dr. Zaharadni will address. All right. So is are we just noticing milder cases? Absolutely not. If you look at the CDC ADDM data. You can see if you just restrict it to cases with intellectual disability, you see this dramatic increase. Or if you just restrict it to cases with intellectual disability or borderline ID, so that's all the IQs 85 and below, again, you see this dramatic increase. And this is only over 12 years. 
uh, here's more evidence that we're not just noticing, you know, um, mild cases. If we look at profound autism, which is the most strict definition of autism that we have yet, and that's restricted to IQs of uh, under 50 or non or minimally verbal. So that's like my two kids who have autism. We've seen um, about a doubling of that. Um, this is over 16 ascertainment years. Now, non-profound autism, which is IQs above or 50 and above, um, they have definitely um, increased at a faster pace. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's it. We see even for even the strictest definition, we see a very very significant increase over a short period of time. So some people say, oh, we're just um, diagnostic shifting, right? People we used to be called intellectual intellectually disabled um, or MR, and now we call it autism. Unfortunately, there really is no good evidence for this. Here's one example from um, the CDC has for a long time, which is based in Atlanta, for a long time has done surveillance of autism in the Atlanta region. This was, these were studies were kind of precursors to the ADDM network, by the way. Um, and they saw this incredible increase in autism rates. And these were carefully done studies, careful at case ascertainment, but they saw intellectual disability remaining pretty flat over time. In fact, you know, they were really interested in this. So they, they deliberately looked at this data and they said they only flat found a plausible shift between intellectual disability to ASD um, for non-Hispanic black females, which was only a small subset of this overall um, group of children. Similarly, if we come here to California, we see a very similar trend where you know, ID actually has been increasing kind of flattening out a bit here, um, but ASD has been increasing at a far faster pace. Um, and uh, that cannot um, explain you know, the increase in autism, the decrease in ID was not corresponding to the increase in ASD. And again, California enacted more stringent eligibility criteria in 2022. We see this little flattening out. I think that may have affected the ID more than ASD. I'm not sure, kind of interesting. We'll move on. ADHD, in case you don't know, which is sort of our brother disorder, <laughs> um, has been increasing at a rate kind of similar to autism, but at higher rates. So we see a similar pattern over time, but at higher rates. Uh, the most recent studies are showing about 11% of children have ADHD, which is truly shocking. ADHD can be a very debilitating, very serious mental disorder. Um, but here you can see a, de a decline in ADHD can't possibly explain um, ASD. Population changes do not explain the increase in, AD in, in ASD. This is from California, but I can show you graphs from many other cohorts that are very, very similar. The green is uh, the, um, the percent change over the previous year. So the, the rate of increase in ASD, the blue is uh, represents rate of change in the population. They obviously do not correspond. Autism clearly greatly outstrips any change in the, in the underlying population. And really interestingly in California, um, and by the way, I should say, say parenthetically, California has 
the best autism data in the nation because we have a statute here called the Lanterman Act. The Lanterman Act has required case finding and reporting on autism for decades. And no other state has something quite like the Lanterman Act. Sometimes you have to just dig into crazy Medicaid data to figure out what's going on in a given state. But California has a whole department that's been looking at this stuff for a long time. Autism only made up 4.8% of our De Department of Developmental Services system in 1993. Well, fast forward 31 years and it's half the caseload. Anyone you talk to in our system, which is called the regional center system, because those are the agencies that actually fund and provide um, programs for our developmentally disabled citizens, will tell you that they've seen this exact trend. And it's not that they've just shifted labels, that they've been seeing a manifest, obvious, objective difference in the characteristics of the people who are now in the system compared to the people who were in the system, for example, in the 90s. In the 90s, it was mostly, you know, it was a much smaller DD population. You know, with Down syndrome, we had CP, epilepsy, you know, genetic disorders, a little bit of autism, but not much um, based on underlying characteristics. And you know, the, the programs that were set up in California to serve these people, most of them are completely unprepared to serve at least those who are more severely disabled by autism. Okay, very quickly, we see this dramatic increase in our Medicaid population. Um, the autism population there are more than tripled between 2018 and 2016. If you restrict it to adults, we see these, again, dramatic increases, but mostly in these younger age groups. We don't really see much of an increase at all in the older age groups. In our social security system, of course, our kids, when they reach 18, they're eligible for supplemental security income if they're sufficiently disabled, you know, and, and can't, and they're disabled, you know, too disabled to work, basically. Um, there was a more than threefold increase in adults receiving SSI benefits um, over 10 years. Okay, now I'm in part, where am I? Part, th part three. <laughs> of my presentation. And I'm gonna talk about some international data. I'm leaving the US for a while by US. Um, here up north in Canada, we see a very similar type of trend um, in terms of birth year prevalence. Um, and these are just some of the, the studies that show the change over time. In England, very, very similar trends um, from you know very low prevalence, um, to you know, this is like 0 0.05, 0.045%, which is very similar to the US CPP data, which I talked about before, which is 0.064% with the broad definition. You know, today we are looking uh, almost at 3% of um, English children having autism. Um, and uh, it's also seen in the UK schools. There was a report on that in 2020. Um, this particular study, Onions et al., which I will talk about again later, again, they found about 3% of children born in the 2004-2008 timeframe had autism compared to 0.02% of the population um, age 70 and above. So that, and there could be some death, obviously, mortality would have something to do with that, but couldn't possibly explain that gigantic gap. 
Here we have um, Northern Ireland, which has crazy autism numbers. Um, you see, again, this same kind of regular stepwise increase over time. And if you look at the numbers, this is from a very recent report, I think from last year, yeah, last year, um, they found 7.3% of their school-age males had autism, um, overall 5%. That's a crazy number. You will see another number like this in Dr. Zaharadni's presentation. But I don't know why a number like this doesn't raise the alarm bells. Um, this is absolutely potentially catastrophic you know, for Northern Ireland. Okay, if we go uh, to some other European countries, um, this was a study looking at an 18 year trend in autism birth year prevalence. They found consistently higher ASD rates, rates in each successive birth cohorts in these countries, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Western Australia, and Iceland, um, two different studies showing an increase from 1.2%, um, uh, to 3.1%. Israel, again, same kind of thing where we had pretty low rates. There's 0.1% birth year 1991 to now we're looking at 1.5%, um, 1.56% 1 uh, 2013 birth year. This was a very recent paper from just this year, January of this year, and it found a nearly twofold increase in ASD prevalence between 2017 and 2021. That's not the same as birth year prevalence. Remember, we talked about that. It's a little bit confusing. But nevertheless, it was a huge increase and one I think they weren't expecting and one they found quite shocking. One really interesting thing about Israel is it's a pretty small country and they have really great epidemiologists there. They also have incredibly great data systems. They have great um, records in their ins basically public insurance, health insurance systems. And, you know, they can look very, very closely to see if, you know, different methodologies, different ways of ascertaining autism are influencing the results. And no, they are not. I mean, so they say changes affecting diagnostic criteria for ASD and eligibility for services did not appreciably affect these trends. Okay, let's go to Japan. Same trend, we see um, the uh, steady increase in autism rates. It's a little, I'm, I know you guys aren't epidemiologists, it's a little bit confusing to look at these different ways of showing data, but they all show the same thing, which is the steadily increasing prevalence over time. You can see how it's higher for, for males than for females, and this is for overall, um, up to about, and we talked about this before, more than 3% of children from the 2014 birth cohort. Oh, by the way, this is only to age five. So you know that they're omitting a lot of autism because a lot of children are not diagnosed before age five. Okay, so finally, we're not finally, we're in section four of my presentation. Um, and this is where I talk about a couple of studies that people like to invoke to explain away the increase and to rationalize you know, the increase as just an artifact of, you know, ascertainment and awareness. So the first, I'm going to talk about four of them. Um, this one you hear about all the time. This shows up at Twitter all the time. Oh, but you have to read that Denmark study because <laughs> the Denmark study shows that there's no real increase in autism. Well, here's that Denmark study. It is from 2015. It's by Hansen et al. What this study showed 
is that there was in fact a very, very dramatic increase in autism prevalence between um, birth years 1980 and birth year 1991. Um, but they wanted to see if changes in diagnostic criteria that were specific to Denmark were influencing these rates. What they found was that 40% of the increase could not be explained by diagnostic factors. So there's that. And then they speculated, really speculated, because they didn't really have any strong underlying data, in my opinion, um, that 60% of this change was caused by changes of practice. Okay, I don't know. Let's take that as, let's say that they're right. That's fine. Well, still 40% isn't explained. And let's jump down to this graph at the bottom corner. The time frame for comparison here is here. Look at California's autism cases by birth year. This study happened down here when the autism, you know, the world autism rates were very, very low. So they're explaining a shift here. It has nothing to do with anything that happened after that. And in fact, and this is the most important point, studies after this showed tremendous increases in autism prevalence that have not been explained by different you know, ways of diagnosing. Most recently, 2.8% per Schendel and Thornstein. And here you can see Diana Schendel was also an author on this 2015 paper. People, I know this is a little bit in the weeds, but it's super important because these studies are invoked all the time to try to beat back this idea of a true increase in autism. This study by no means shows there has been no increase in autism. Another really one that's infamous in my view are you know, two um, papers by this guy, Terry Bruja at University of Leicester in, um, in England. And you sometimes hear, I mean, I, gosh, I heard this for years, but a study in England found that 1% of adults have autism and that shows that autism is not increased over time because 1% of kids with autism, if there's 1% of kids with autism and 1% of adults with autism, that's the same rate. And therefore we don't have a problem. Well, that all comes from this guy. And you, I honestly, people, I cannot believe how we're, we're fooled in this world. Um, I really encourage you to read these papers. I have um, cited them here. They are master classes in complete nonsense. And if anybody can really figure out the, the uh, methodology that his lab used, please let me know <laughs> because it is so convoluted and so weird and so poorly explained. I can't believe, I can't believe this stuff got through peer review. And in fact, it kind of didn't get through peer review. Um, it was noted in his 2016 report that his report was based on experimental statistics, right? So they didn't even say that these were affirmed. They were validated only by his own team. They found that, um, the prevalence of um, autism in adults was 0.8%. Here they found 1%. Well, now we're looking at 3% of kids. But also, these were very, very small numbers of adults. And these numbers, they were all very high functioning because they had to be able to respond to surveys. They had to be able to be convert conversational. Um, so... Um, you know, it's not at all comparable to what we're seeing in these very, very large, very robust studies that I've already talked about. 
And in fact, here's the kicker. If you read his work, he found increasing birth year prevalence, <laughs> which is crazy. I don't know why no one talks about this. So the younger cohorts here have much higher rates of autism than the older cohorts here. Very oddly, it has this big gap in the 35 to 54 year olds, which is really weird, but it shows to shows you how poor quality um, data he had. Anyway, one more thing I have to say about Terry Bruja because I think that he has been a particular problem for autism research, very much over relied upon. A couple of years ago, 2020, um, Nature Reviews Disease Primers published a review about autism spectrum disorder. This is viewed, people you have to understand, this is viewed as a definitive consensus statement about autism by the top experts. You can see here, it has 41,000 accesses, 614 citations. It is hugely cited and it is kind of held up as like the Bible really of autism. Who wrote the section on prevalence in this review Terry Bruja himself. I was told that by Dr. Lord, who's the first author of this paper. He denies an increase in autism in this very influential cornerstone piece of scientific research. He says there is no clear evidence of a change in prevalence in autism in the community between 1990 and 2010. If you have been listening to my presentation, you can see that there's abundant evidence for this. He only cited to six cases or six studies, I'm sorry, three of which were his own. <laughs> I can't believe this got through peer review. It's insane. And the other three studies that he cites have no data to support his firm assertion of no increase. People, you have to understand, you can't believe everything you read in the scientific literature. This was very damaging. It continues to be very damaging. And um, it's, a, it's a real problem. We have to set the record straight. All right, finally, the other two um, studies that I wanted to talk about that are sometimes invoked to you know, explain away the autism increase. Um, I'll start here at the bottom because this one actually came first. Um, this was from 2020. And this was a group at the CDC that published a paper saying that 5.4 million adults in the U.S. have autism, one in 45 adults. How did they come to this conclusion when you anyone can go and look at any data set and see nothing reflecting anything like, the, like this data? All they did was assume a constant birth year prevalence based on children today. So all they did was they projected the birth year prevalence that we have in our children onto all birth years, you know, up to age, whatever it was, 80. I mean, it's insane. That's crazy. There's no empirical evidence for this at all. All they did was make an assumption of constant birth year prevalence when there is no evidence for that. I mean, I can, I, again, I can't believe this stuff got through peer review. This is scientific misconduct in my view. Very similarly, this group in the UK did a, pretty careful study on a very large, it's basically a medical data set, large population-wide medical data set. A lot of, lot of data there. And they found that about 3% of 10 to 14-year-olds had a diagnosis, one in 34, and 0.02% age 70 plus, one in 6,000, had autism. That's a 147-fold increase over time. But 
what did these researchers do? They used this data to say that, well, we're assuming that there's in real life, there's been a constant birth year prevalence of autism, again, offering not a speck of empirical evidence for that. And they suggested that this data means that between you know, 435,000 and 1.2 million people in England, adults in England may be autistic and undiagnosed. I mean, it's, it's lunacy, but, um, but nevertheless, this is what we have to contend with. Okay, so here's a summary slide before I get to my coda, my part five, and then I'll turn it over to Dr. Zaharadny. First part of my summary, there were exceedingly low autism rates in children born through the 1980s. Prevalence from many studies was consistently about 0.01 to 0.05%, about five out of 10,000 children. These often included the broader definition, including Asperger's. We saw this across multiple countries. We see a dramatic surge in the same time frame, starting around 1990-ish. The evidence for a true increase in autism is overwhelming, even looking apples to apples, it, we're, we are looking between a 20 and 50 fold increase in autism over that time. There is no empirical evidence for diagnostic switch or awareness causing this massive increase. The commonly heard, but Denmark, but Bruja, but undiagnosed adults rationalizations do not withstand even a little bit of scrutiny. There's no empirical evidence for these rates in cohorts of older adults, i.e. those born before 1990 who are now 34 and above, disabled by autism. There's no hidden hoard in epidemiology, in school records, in medical system records, in insurance records, in public benefits records. Listen, it would be the easiest thing in the world to go into the California DDS data or to go into one of these older studies like, um, uh, like the like the CPP, the Collaborative Perineal Project, and try to see, we have all these records from thousands of cases, how many have we missed? It'd be easy to do. They aren't doing that. In fact, when they have done that, and they've done that at least twice based on older studies, they haven't found any appreciable increase in autism that can explain anything like the prevalence we're seeing today. So finally, part five. We're seeing these dramatic increases in autism. Uh, so people are like, well, what's causing it? You know, if it's not awareness and it's not diagnostic shifts, not ascertainment methods, what's causing it? If there's something real causing this, we should probably know what it is. Well, any hypothesis really has to meet these criteria. They have to, it has to be consistent with the increase that we just talked about. Uh, you know, with the early 1990s, starting with the early 1990s births, there has to be, it has to be able to explain the continued increasing prevalence from that point. It has to explain the strong heritability of autism, especially the sharply increased sibling risk. We know that autism is highly heritable in the sense that if you have one kid with autism, you probably have a 16 to maybe even 20% chance of having another kid with autism, or at least it's very similar developmental disability. It has to be able to explain what autism really is at heart. Biologically, autism is a dysregulation in early brain development, particularly affecting the GABAergic system, which I won't get into now. 
it has to explain this weird and unexplained male to female ratio is about 4.1, 4 to 1 cases. And it also has to explain this weird regional variability, especially higher rates in wealthier countries. And so far, nothing has come close to explaining this. Genetics fails in all of these respects, except for this fourth section, the dysregulation of early brain development. Um, genetics uh, it suffers from what they call unexplained heritability, where genetics only explains really a, a handful of cases compared to the whole. And of course, it's not vaccines. Vaccines really can't explain any of this. So this is the greatest medical mystery of our time. And the people who are supposed to be solving this are acting like there's no problem to solve, which should deeply worry us. Um, it, we should be very worried about the future of our children and of this country um, if we don't figure this out. So um, here's an emerging hypothesis. And it's one that I'm very actively participating in. Um, that the rise in ASD is in part attributable to unforeseen impacts of heritable impacts of certain toxic exposures to our germ cells, which is our sperm and egg. So if you look at traditional autism um, environmental research, it looks at this generation, right? What were they exposed to as fetuses? What were they exposed to in early life? Our argument is that we shouldn't be looking at our kids it's nothing that our kids were exposed to. It's what we parents were exposed to. That's the shift that we need to see in epidemiology because that's what can help explain these weird patterns in autism research. So it would be a change in our germ cells, our egg or our sperm. That would change what's called the transcriptional landscape. It would change how our genes are expressed in our children in early development. So we call this the F1 parents, I'm an F1, my children are F2. Look, I have a son and a daughter with autism. There they are. But what exposure, what could it be? What is this lightning bolt that can change the inheritance we give our children? What can change the way our genes act in our sperm and egg? And here's one example that has been really proven to do this in animal models. And these are modern day um, general anesthetic gases, but I'm also including other general anesthetic agents as well. These came around you know, mostly in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I didn't list all of them here, but these are just some examples. These are highly toxic exposures. They're neurotoxic, they're genotoxic, they're reproductive toxic toxicants, and they, they reach gonads of the patients who are exposed to them and they do reach the germ cells. And we know that because of the animal studies. We also know that because of at least one human study. Um, so uh, they affect the way uh, the, the GABA system works. Again, I'm not going get to in, get into that. Um, but this is one example, which is sevoflurane. So what we've seen in animal models with sevoflurane, which is now the most common inhalational anesthetic used in the US, especially in children, is that if we expose the parents that their children are at higher risk for having dysregulation in their brain development, autism traits in their behaviors, and that is especially seen in the male offspring, which is quite striking because it maps so clearly to what we're seeing with autism. So the idea isn't that like everybody who gets you know, general anesthesia will be at risk for having kids with autism. I definitely don't think that's true. There's nothing to suggest that's true. So there's probably a low absolute risk, but across the population, because 
you know, 50 million Americans get this kind of exposure every year, probably a broad population risk. This hypothesis ticks all six of the boxes, the inflection point in 80s, 90s, uh, the continued increasing prevalence, the strong heritability of autism because of the perturbation of the pool of the parent's germ cells, the dysregulation of early brain development due to the mechanisms of actions and what we're seeing in the animal studies, the high male-to-female ratio, that's what we're seeing in the animal studies, also the regional variability, including higher rates in wealthier countries because of the higher rates of usage of these agents. But research is desperately needed. We, all we have is the beginnings of this hypothesis. It is not remotely proven. We need research to actually look at this instead of repetitive and repetitive and repetitive research, which is what we see in autism. Final thoughts. The evidence for a true increase in autism is overwhelming. We face a national and indeed an international emergency with which we absolutely cannot cope. And this portends an unimaginably bleak future for countless individuals and families. It's urgent to expand treatments and systems of care serving hu a huge variety of needs. Our system really, I think system reform hinges on accepting the reality of this autism surge because right now we are playing pretend and completely asleep at the wheel, not addressing this true increase, and in fact, trying to dismiss it as an artifact, again, of awareness, which is not true at all. The denialism must stop. We need answers now. It is really irresponsible to treat autism, which is a serious neurodevelopmental abnormality in the majority of cases, to dismiss it as a form of diversity. The most promising hypothesis so far relates to parental germline exposure, just like I just talked about, but this line of inquiry is almost entirely ignored in favor of genomics when we can be absolutely sure, based on decades of research, that genomics, genetics only explains a small fraction of the overall autism cases. So I don't know how I did on time. I didn't do great on time, not too bad. For more info, papers that I've written, presentations I've given, you can look at any of these sources, but I'm gonna stop sharing and turn it over to our New Jersey friend, Dr. Zaharadni, um, who fortunately has a much shorter presentation <laughs> than mine. All right, Dr. Zaharadni. I'm gonna get him to unmute. And I'm sorry that was so long. You should know that I started with 100 slides and I got it down to 40. <laughs> so there's that. All right, I'm gonna have him start his video. There he is. Hi, uh, so <laughs> I'm so happy to join you and I so enjoyed your superb, highly detailed presentation, Jill. I definitely can't uh, outdo that, but I'm hoping to share my approach to this question Apparently, I can't share my... Oh, screen. shoot. Okay, that's my bad. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Let me go back to you. Oops, hold on. I, I'm being a bad host. I clicked on the wrong thing. Okay, can you share it now? Hoping to do that. I think you should be able to. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay so... thank you so much. Yeah, so, uh, so today I'm going to take a different tack. I'm going to take a very simplistic and uh, essential approach. 
I'm going to do that because I think our New Jersey surveillance data is the best coherent uh, longitudinal um, information about autism trends in the United States. I say that because uh, we have a lot of advantages in our approach. We're using an active population-based approach, which identifies not only diagnosed cases, but those individuals who satisfy the definition of autism, uh, even without a, a diagnosis. And we're doing our surveillance over uh, an extensive period of time from 2000 to 2016, in which we used a uh, consistent, uh, highly productive, uh, comprehensive population-based approach uh, in a region which is very populous, very diverse, uh, served by many uh, clinical resources and educational systems that are sophisticated and well-funded. I'm going to try to um, provide you with 20 years of information in approximately 10 slides, uh, which are organized according to what I consider to be uh, the main findings or the main themes of our findings. Uh, so, my first um, conclusion or my first uh, thematic statement is that autism is definitely a highly prevalent disorder. Within a generation, uh, we've seen autism. Uh, which used to be considered by everyone quite correctly as a rare disorder, as affecting at least 3% of eight-year-old children. And uh, in some selected counties and regions of New Jersey, as many as 5 to 7% of the pediatric population. Uh, there's no doubt that autism is uh, much more prevalent than many other childhood disorders and many more much more common than many uh, frequently encountered childhood diseases. Um, there's no doubt as well that while New Jersey's rate uh, is quite high, we're not only the only, now we're not only the re only region with high rates, but that these high rates are now reflected uh, from data in California. My second and third uh, premises or statements of what's essential reflect the fact that autism has increased very dramatically uh, in the 16 year period from 2000 to 2016. Uh, it's increased across all subgroups, all uh, forms of autism, uh, across all demographic groups. And it's increased in New Jersey from approximately 1%, 9.9 per thousand is essentially 1% to now uh, 31.4 per thousand or 3%. Uh, the, the, the trend identified in New Jersey is clearly mirrored or reflected by the trend in the overall ADAM network. We're all using the same methodology, the same procedures and real, reliability strategies to identify all the true cases of autism. As I mentioned, our approach is not just based on identified or diagnosed cases, but we do independent case determination so that we could even find those individuals who've uh, avoided a diagnosis. Um, as Jill mentioned, before the 1990s, autism prevalence was correctly identified to affect approximately one-tenth 
to two tenths of a percent. And so when a high um, uh, identification of autism in Brick Township in 2001 uh, called attention to this fact, uh, another couple of years had to, uh, a couple of years of work had to elapse before the Adam Network identified overall prevalence to be uh, 0.6 per thousand, while in New Jersey it was 0.9. And as you see, the rates went up uh, without cessation and without plateauing continuously. The fourth uh, um, object of my attention is that um, autism, in spite of better awareness, better recognition, is still widely underdiagnosed. Uh, we find that uh, overall in the period from 2000 to 2016, there was improvement in the rate of autism diagnosis. This was a significant improvement. Nonetheless, uh, even as late as 2016, 22% or one of five eight-year-olds uh, who satisfied the case definition, who met the criteria for autism by our independent surveillance did not have an autism diagnosis. Not much different from what we identified when we looked uh, at adolescent children. Among 16-year-olds uh, in our region, we also identified that as many as a quarter did not have an autism diagnosis. So autism is prevalent. It increased. New Jersey was a leading indicator. And now we also understand that even in spite of better awareness, the true expression, the true prevalence of autism is not uh, merely the diagnosed cases. We still lag in our ident identification of um, autism prevalence. An important feature which we've um, identified every time in every cycle of monitoring in New Jersey, unfortunately, uh, children from low economic, low SES communities and children from minority groups are more likely to be undiagnosed or to be misdiagnosed. Uh, in addition to this misdiagnosis, there are significant timing factors which are important to understand and to address. These are specifically that children from low in and from children from minority and low income communities come to attention, get their first professional evaluation later than children from other communities. Uh, they're diagnosed later. And uh, from the perspective of interventions, they're much less likely to, to receive early intervention program services. So in spite of better awareness, better diagnosis, we still have a continuing issue with um, uh, under-identification and under-intervention with uh, specific groups. Um, most of you might be familiar with the fact that from 2000 to 2010, across many studies, not only by the Adam Network, but by uh, New Jersey investigators, we found a very strong positive association between wealth, uh, between socioeconomic status and autism prevalence. Uh, it consistently was observed that uh, twice as many children with autism could be, would be identified in high income compared to low income communities. And we thought that this would 
at some point begin to decline, but it stayed consistent for a 10-year period. However, more recently, since 2010, we've been finding and confirming in New Jersey, as well as in the Atom Network, that now this uh, wealth gradient with regard to autism prevalence is uh, reversed. And now we're identifying greatest rates of autism prevalence in low and middle income communities. Equally interesting is the fact that since 2010, 2012, Hispanic children with autism are showing the strongest uh, acceleration in autism prevalence estimates. This is very puzzling and underappreciated, this shift in the autism gradient, because uh, we, would want, we would understand why over time children from underserved community would equalize in their estimates or uh, uh, match uh, prevalence estimates from high-income communities, but it's not at all clear why their estimates should grow higher uh, beyond uh, the rate found in high-income communities. Uh, autism is widely studied in children. That's very important. We can learn a lot from early identification and from the characteristic presentations. However, it's also very important and uh, happily in New Jersey, we're able to study in a comprehensive way the complete prevalence uh, portfolio of children who were 16 years old. Uh, we did this in our traditional New Jersey surveillance region uh, with children when they, with uh, adolescents when they were 16 years old. And we found that indeed uh, these uh, adolescents with autism were very complex and had um, overlapping needs of many different type. Um, probably stemming from the fact that th uh, three out of five or 59% had other co-occurring uh, neuropsychiatric problems or disorders like uh, mood disorder, anxiety, uh, ADHD, uh, and, and the like. In addition, more than one in three or 35% had co-occurring intellectual disability this uh, difficulty learning and using information efficiently is an important uh, addition to the main presentation of autism and makes the care and intervention needs all the greater for a significant group of individuals. Even though we took a very close look at prevalence and expression uh, when individuals were 16, we found the same uh, under identification or under diagnosis among adolescents that we found among children. Even at age 16, one in four adolescents with autism were undiagnosed. They were diagnosed with other conditions or other concerns, but not with autism. And reflecting the traditional uh, wealth gradient in the, in the prevalence of autism, we found that uh, Autism among adolescents in our region was twice as common in high income compared to low income communities. Uh, significantly as well, uh, there were complications that separated and marked the expression of autism by race, ethnicity. Black and Hispanic children with autism were more likely to have intellectual disability. 
while white children were more likely to have co-occurring neuropsychiatric disorders or problems. Uh, we found very close estimates uh, of autism prevalence in this cohort between eight and 16 years. That is, the estimate offered at eight years was almost exactly the same as the one we found at 16. Some individuals uh, were lost. That is, they may have lost their uh, autism or moved out of the region, and some new cases were added. But essentially, um, the prevalence estimate was exactly the same. And so in the future, when you think of autism among children among eight-year-olds being in the three, four, five percent range, you know that that's what it's going to be when these individuals are adolescents. Um, the, the summation of these key factors or key findings leads me to make a couple, a couple of simple projections or predictions for the near future. The first, of course, is that autism prevalence for 2022, that is for the next surveillance cycle, will be higher than found previously. This is inevitable because autism prevalence has not peaked uh, even in the most recent surveillance cycles, and still higher estimates are, are likely as we acquire uh, a, a better ability to identify minority and low SES uh, individuals. Um, unfortunately, uh, as we saw in the past, wealth and, and race-based disparities in autism detection and intervention will be will continue. Uh, these inter these disparities are very important because differences in the interventions, in particular, may make for differences in outcome and quality of life. Finally, I would predict that the next ref that the next report from uh, the Adam Network will not ref reflect significant public health concern or propose understanding autism risk factors or promotion of early detection, but most likely the next report will mention better awareness and recognition as possible factors bearing on higher estimates. This is a standard, almost magical uh, Cohen that uh, comes up every time the uh, prevalence estimates are provided. Uh, we really don't understand what's driving autism prevalence. We don't know the risk factors. And so the best one can say, uh, apparently, <laughs> is that uh, the increase might be due to better awareness or recognition. Nonetheless, uh, we should be thinking of what to do better and what to do for the future. Without doubt, the most important factors or uh, improvements that we could recommend involve um, enhancing and promoting studies which attempt to identify autism risk factors and triggers. These are not genetic uh, factors, these are environmental factors, and uh, what it's necessary to understand which ones are driving uh, and have driven autism prevalence uh, uh, twofold and threefold over the last 15 years. Since we don't yet understand, and I see no prospect for understanding the autism risk factors or triggers in the near future, I think it's very important that we try to promote universal autism screening 
of toddlers and preschool age children. Early interventions may make a difference in many different uh, functional domains. They may make a difference in the integrity and well-being of the family uh, or in the quality of the life of indi affected individuals. Um, there's no uh, better way to address the disparities that we've identified race and wealth-based disparities in identification better than universal autism screening. This is not a radical or a new proposal. It's been recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics since 2007. But unfortunately, this, this recommendation still needs to be made in 2024. Uh, given the high and escalating rate of autism in our population, and given the disparities we've identified, it's essential that from the policy perspective, we uh, plan and uh, provide resources for care services and interventions to individuals with autism, and that we understand that autism is a lifelong condition uh, for the vast majority of individuals, and that we uh, should also look forward, as we did with uh, uh, understanding something more about um, adolescents with autism by promoting population-based studies of adults with autism. A uh, lot remains to be seen, a lot remains to be known about adults with autism. And as Jill pointed out, the studies from the UK, the Bruja studies, others like that are totally inadequate in giving us a, a, a sense of perspective on this question. Uh, I would love to hear your questions and comments today, but uh, if you leave our presentation, this webinar, uh, and have questions tomorrow or in the future, I would encourage you to um, avail yourself of uh, our information on uh, the Rutgers Children's Research Center or by contacting me or our uh, coordinator in New Jersey. I thank you. Uh, everything I said, by the way, in the uh, preliminary slides is documented by references and you could look up uh, many uh, additional figures, tables, graphs and the like, uh, but all of them underscore the facts that both Jill and I have pointed to and I think uh, confirm the importance this, of this as an essential public health uh, phenomenon and crisis which calls for a lot of attention and um, um, a lot of action. So I thank you so much and with Jill's permission would take any questions. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Zaharadny. Um, uh, what a treat. And of course, um, the magical koan <laughs> will, will return that, you know, we're just, um, we're just so aware of autism or we're so much more accepting of autism now. That's why, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight percent of our children, you know, have this mental disability, right? <laughs> so uh, gird yourselves. Okay, we have so many questions and so many really, really good questions. Um, let's see, I'm gonna stop sharing your screen. Um, let's see, I don't know if that's gonna do it. Maybe you have to do it. But anyway, let's go ahead. Um, I'm not gonna take these in order, but um, two people asked, um, what in your opinion serves these researchers in diminishing the reality of the increase? What do they have to gain? And similarly, there seems to be a coordinated effort by many organizations across the world to deny the massive increase. What are your theories 
on why such strong denialism. Um, denial is often used to protect some from blame or to protect profits. I don't know about that, but um, I certainly have views on that. Dr. Zaharani, do you want to start? Yeah, so the most constructive thing I could say is all these questions are relevant and very important. And unfortunately, no agency uh, or program in the United States has the resources as the CDC to identify the potential risk factors and triggers for autism. And they've committed the most resources to identifying uh, and to understanding this phenomenon, and yet we've gotten nowhere. I've been part of the Adam Network since 2000, and so I've, I was there at the initiation and across the development and, and enhancement of the network. And I think when we started, there was true interest and excitement and surprise uh, regarding the first of all high rates and the escalation of rates. But somewhere after the third or fourth cycle, uh, uh, it became clear that there were no plausible ideas or hypotheses that the CDC felt compelled to investigate. And it would be therefore uh, less complicated and less dangerous to uh, prevail with a search for risk factors it would be much less controversial to uh, acknowledge what is possibly responsible for a small increase in um, case determination, that is better awareness. But it's uncomfortable uh, to identify a phenomenon and not to be able to explain it. If I were to say, if I were to conjecture what a motive could be by some organization such as the CDC, I would be um, implying something in that direction. In addition, in the ivory tower, for every creative um, open individual, there are five to 10 who are likely to repeat what is considered to be the standard wisdom about a, about a phenomenon. Uh, and the the explanation of uh, escalating autism based on better awareness um, is hard to puncture once it's established uh, because people resort to it automatically. And without there really being a well-identified set of hypothetical risk factors, uh, it's just easier to retreat behind the uh, concept of better awareness. I have never, I've yet to encounter uh, someone in the clinical field, that is somebody who works with uh, uh, developmental pediatrics, child neurology, child psychology, or serves children through the public education system who doubts that this is a true increase. In my opinion, it's mainly people far up in the ivory tower who've really never encountered a disorder like autism and yet, and feel, I guess, threatened by uh, uh, speculation. Uh, the first wave of speculation in this field was concerning vaccination. And the vaccination hypothesis, though wrong, was uh, very compelling on a number of grounds. And it was very distressing to the Centers for Disease Control to have that hypothesis out there. 
once the hypothesis was um, um, debunked or uh, failed to uh, uh, gather evidence, supportive evidence, uh, uh, no other contrary idea or hypothesis that was compelling enough uh, came into the field. And so we're kind of stuck repeating the same the same pseudo explanations. Thank you. Uh, people people have tried. I have to. Uh oh. By the CDC called SEED, a multi state project which involved researchers over the United States who looked at perinatal risk factors for autism. We looked at that as well in New Jersey. And while there are risk factors, uh, associated with autism, uh, none of them, and the combination of all of them does not account for a shift of the size or magnitude as we're witnessing. Things like prematurity, low birth weight, multiplicity, uh, even mode of delivery is somewhat associated with autism risk, but in a small way, not sufficient to explain a big phenomenon. So Thank you. Um, sorry to say that, but this is like my long-winded um, justification for why we are really not progressing, not enough good quality hypothesis about risks being tested. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I just want to add a little bit more to that, but I agree with everything you said. Uh, number one, I agree that you know there was a real backlash to the vaccine hypothesis, and people did not want to be seen as kind of condoning the idea of an increase in autism because they didn't want to fuel that um, the vaccine you know idea at all. So obviously you can have an increase in autism with it not being caused by vaccines. That's logically true. But nevertheless, they were so scared of this that they really backtracked on that. Second of all, you know, autism has been shown to be very heritable and there has there hasn't been really any strong um, research showing that it's caused by these environmental factors, such as the ones that Dr. Zaharani just mentioned. So, you know, they figured, well, it's heritable. It must be in, in the genes somehow. And if it's genetic, it can't possibly have increased over time because our genes don't mutate that quickly. Our genes don't change that quickly. Well, of course, my argument is absolutely 100%. Our genes do change that quickly, um, but it has to do with how the genes are expressed and not with the nucleotide sequence itself. So that's a very important scientific principle that unfortunately has not been strongly injected into the mainstream of autism academia. The other issue going on is the, the rise of the neurodiversity movement. So for ideological reasons, people just don't want to accept the increase in autism because the neurodiversity movement is premised on the idea that autism is natural. And autism's always been here, and it's an important part of human diversity, right? Well, if you say, well, guess what? There's a really toxic chemical, or two or three or four, right, that are actually causing this. That subverts the now popular neurodiversity narrative. The other issue is there's incredible fear and laziness in the media. There is one media outlet that absolutely controls the autism narrative almost 100%, and that is Spectrum News, which comes out of the Simons Foundation. Spectrum News is ideologically completely adherent to the idea that autism is genetic and there is no true increase in autism. So if you have that kind of heavy weight in the media that's so influential and that other journalists are not willing to 
kind of, you know, do the homework, right, to fight against, that will become the prevailing wisdom. And that is what, ha that is what happens um, with the Simons Foundation, which is really, really, really unfortunate. I don't know a way to change that. It's like a walled fortress there, and they don't really want to entertain any ideas outside of genetics. It's really, really, I can't tell you, I think it's kind of disastrous, actually. Anyway, there's so many questions. And um, let's move on. Some people have asked about the slides. I will definitely post the video. Will I post the slides? Probably, Dr. Zahardni, would you be willing to share your slides? Of course, yes. Okay, so I think that answer is is yes. Um, okay, so, God, there's so many. Um, ASD prevalence is clearly ex exponentially increasing, so why not invest in metabolomics tests to give priority to those who may screen positive? I don't have much to say about metabolomics. Um, do you, Dr. Zaharadni? I don't know enough to comment. Okay. Um, somebody here said that she was, I want to get to the teacher. Sorry, sorry. I definitely think there's been a large increase in the rate of autism. However, I was a special ed teacher from 1974 to 2009. Congratulations, by the way. And there are many kids labeled with many different conditions or no condition at all who would absolutely have the autism diagnosis today. I think that's probably true. I think as an absolute number, no, though, that's going to be pretty small. Dr. Zaharadni? Yeah, uh, there's autism classification. Only about half of the total number of individuals with autism who are school age have autism as their primary classification. The other half are under multiply disabled, specific learning disability, other health impair impaired language disorder. So these, there are children with autism in the education system uh, that equal the number uh, that are classified with autism. Uh, special education statistics are a very good national uh, indicator of autism prevalence. They have followed the same trajectory as shown by Jill's slides and by our group findings. What's only in question is the magnitude of the affected population. If you're only counting half of the true individuals, those estimates will be low. Just like in California in the DDS system, those estimates, those trends are correct, no doubt about it. But the estimates themselves are, in my opinion, underestimates because, as Jill pointed out, they probably only capture uh, individuals with severe impairment and obviously only individuals who've been diagnosed. So all the indicators... Uh, Parent report survey, all the way up to uh, active population-based surveillance and educational statistics and health data, health use data, Medicaid, Medicare, all of these show exactly the same trend. It can't be, a, um, better awareness would imply also a dramatic uh, shifting in human consciousness or awareness of something or a dramatic escalation in our ability to classify. This cannot, and it, it cannot expand indefinitely. If some new phenomenon uh, appears on our, in our consciousness, we, we start pick understanding it and labeling it and we get better at it, but it doesn't go on indefinitely. 
over a decades or generation. Yeah, awareness seems to fuel this in like infinite increase without any need to actually, you know, try to justify it. It's it's amazing. Um, how are the changes to diagnostic criteria in the last DSM accounted for in the recent CDC or California DDS data? Since Asperger's and PDD NOS were included in the criteria, one should expect the population to go up. Yeah. Oh, so I'm sorry. You should have gone first. Um, the D so we tracked DSM-4 and DSM-5. We did it simultaneously in the years uh be uh, before and after the shift. The, the, the shift occurred in 2013. That's when the DSM-5 came out. And when we tracked according to both systems, the DSM-5 estimate was slightly lower than the DSM-4 estimate. It, the DSM-5 estimate or the DSM-5 criteria, in my opinion, are narrower and slightly more specific and therefore less... Um, uh, more difficult to satisfy, especially more difficult to satisfy in a young child. Uh, so um, <clears throat> I I prefer the wider net you, um, provided by DSM-4. I'm not sure that the terms they used were correct. I'm not a big fan of the terms autistic disorder, PDD, NOS, and Asperger's syndrome. But I do think they mm, correctly reflect that there is a wide range of mm, impairment or effect. <clears throat> and that uh, ultimately um, the, the trend phenomenon is not shifted significantly by what I would imagine is like a minor change in, in the diagnostic criteria. Yeah, the studies I've seen that actually have looked at that have not shown that the shift to DSM-5 resulted in an increase. In fact, I saw one from South Korea that showed a very pretty significant decrease in prevalence when they applied the DSM-5 criteria. Um, okay, have there been any studies showing an increase in autism in children that grow into adults with autism born to servicemen and women that served in Desert Storm, Afghanistan, and Iraq? Do you know that? I'm not aware of any studies which involved um, looking at military families and their rates of autism. I think there must have been some because I, I kind of remember that 15 years ago, there were initiatives from the Department of Defense seeking to establish rates of autism among military families, but I never saw anything published in this way. I remember one study from long time ago showing autism rates in military families, but I don't remember the specifics. It'd be, I'm kind of curious. I want to find that one again. I would imagine it would be the same. Uh, the, the, important, the important possible difference that goes unexamined in the United States is the difference in rates between urban and rural settings. I'm certain that the mm, Adam network has shown, uh, but not focused on the fact that the rates are lower in uh, rural areas than in urban areas. And I think that's a true phenomenon. Uh, but the reasons for that are not known, probably deserve exploration on that count alone. There could be something uh, riskier in urbanized environments, or there could be something protective in, in rural environments or some combination of those things.
Um, okay, I we're we're kind of at the time limit. I wanted to uh, reach maybe just um, one or two more. Autism's heritability estimates are all fundamentally flawed. They all use the ACE model analysis, which relies on the assumption there is no gene environment interaction. There is no evidence for lack of gene by environment. Well, my hypothesis that I presented is gene by environment. I'm actually talking about genes changing the, I mean, genes, <laughs> environmental toxicants, literally changing the way genes work. So is that included in, uh, and I'm going to say genes, germline genes, right? Genes before conception. Is that included in heritability analysis? Absolutely not. So heritability analyses have pretty strict assumptions about what constitutes an environmental factor and what constitutes a genetic factor. And it does not include this um, dimension at all. So you're exactly right, um, Alexander. Thanks for mentioning that. Uh, recently, there have been lawsuits related to taking Tylenol while pregnant, leading to autism. That was dismissed, by the way. Thoughts on that? Possible environmental factor, valproic acid, seizure med has also been implicated in autism. Um, yeah, well, the, the the Tylenol, there there are there was like a meta-analysis looking at several studies that came to the conclusion that there was maybe like a 20% increased risk for having a child with autism if the mom was taking you know Tylenol in pregnancy. But um, it was dismissed by the court. I don't think that case has any chance of succeeding. That's my own opinion on it. Um, you know, 20%, there's so many studies showing that, uh, you know, something increased the risk of autism by 20%. <laughs> so 20% 20, 20 increase of autism means like if there's a background, you know, risk of 1%, it's now a risk of 1.2%. So it's really not very significant at all. And there are so many different variables that have like that kind of effect. Like you can't tease out, you know, if it's, you know, Tylenol or, or something else. And also, again, mechanistically, it doesn't explain what we're seeing. Valproic acid, yes, I think 100%, a mother taking valproic acid does increase the risk for autism and also other abnormalities in her child. Um, and um, that, that's been pretty well established. There's also studies in animal models showing that if a father takes, the male takes valproic acid, that through changes in his sperm, that can increase risk for developmental abnormality in the child, which is, again, it's kind of like what I'm interested in. Um, within, okay, different question. Within New Jersey, please go over the differences in autism rates for the regions you mentioned. Any theories about the differences? Uh, <clears throat> So the differences were uh, modest at first between counties, among counties. And so they weren't reported. But in the uh, later phase of our surveillance activities, it became clear that the rates were higher in one county compared to the other counties. When we looked at that, the composition of that county, uh, we determined that it was um, mainly populated by um, middle-class families, low population of low income and a low population of high income individuals. Uh, so it's not really clear uh, based on that profile uh, what the uh, contributing factors might be. Um, however, it is also obvious that the rates of Autism in low-income communities, uh, uh, 
minority com communities has been increasing very rapidly, especially since 2010. And uh, we don't know what's driving those rates higher as we don't know what's causing autism. Um, Elena said her service coordinator in Northern California says her caseload is 78% autism. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, pretty soon our DDS system is going to be autism and just, and some other stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I would uh, imagine if somebody researched uh, the constituency of early intervention programs, they would also find a high proportion of them have uh, our children with autism. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Robert asks, is biological and genetic research at a dead end? Some have this perception. Well, this is exactly right. And this is, I think, the most important thing like anyone can say right now, which is, yes, I would say the major funders have stopped funding meaningful biological research into autism, have given up on looking for causes of autism. The major funders are the NIH, and the major private, that's a public funder, major private funder is the Simons Foundation. As I said before, the Simons Foundation is exclusively devoted to genetics and really doesn't care about um, any possible environmental factor, even the gene by envir environment work that I do. Um, Autism Speaks, which used to be very devoted to finding exogenous causes of autism risk, has given up on it completely and all of their research money goes into genetics. They don't do any environmental work anymore. Um, and as I, as I said, the NIH basically just funds the same old, same old, same old stuff. Nothing new, nothing innovative, nothing like the stuff I talked about, which actually could explain the autism increase. So it's really tragic. I mean, I would do anything to prevent autism in any child. I want to make that clear. I would do anything. And it's amazing how we've all rolled over and we seem to just sort of accept that, well, more and more and more kids are going to be permanently mentally disabled with a serious disorder. And we kind of color it as something that's, you know, diversity and something to be celebrated. It boggles my mind. I cannot, my brain cannot comprehend this. Um, okay. Let's do one more. I'm sorry, I keep going, but the, the questions keep coming in. Um, 160,000 children are on a waiting list in the UK to see a developmental pediatrician awaiting an ASD diagnosis. In an ideal world, how would you solve that, Dr. Zaharadny? Oh my God, that number yeah. is astonishing. Uh, hmm. In the ideal world, in the short term, possibly uh, look beyond the medical subspecialist. At this moment, the vast majority of individuals are diagnosed by developmental pediatricians or pediatric neurologists. There are well-trained clinical psychologists who would be able to diagnose uh, efficiently and correctly, and one could do things to encourage them to go into fields uh, diagnosing and serving children with autism, and that would have a role to play. And similarly, uh, the future probably rests with nurse practitioners advanced practice nurses uh, who are well-trained in, in their educational uh, background, prepared to identify autism, who will be working in pediatricians' offices and possibly affecting the diagno not diagnostic process through the uh, primary provider. Uh, so in the short term, 
There's a lot of technology, you know, a lot of companies coming out with various um, AI, for example, technology to help, you know, at least do screening, if not definitive diagnosis. But yes. yeah, it is scary. I've been reading about, I've been seeing some of these articles about the wait lists for diagnosis in the UK. And you saw what the prevalence numbers already are. They're already 3%. UK. So it makes me wonder what is going on there? How much higher can it go? Um, here in the US, we also see wait lists, but UK, I think has, you know, centralized data, which makes it a little more compelling. Okay, well, um, it went longer than I wanted, but at least it didn't go to two hours. <laughs> um, so everybody, thank you. I'm sorry we didn't get to ask all the questions. Please feel free to email Dr. Zahradni. I'm at jill.esher at gmail.com if you have questions for me. Um, and I really appreciate everybody persevering and hanging on till the end of this webinar and all the really great um, participation and points you've made. Dr. Zarhardney, thank you so, so, so much for all the work you've done for more than 20 years. Uh, to, we're, go, we're going on a quarter century of service to the autism community. So thank you so much for continuing to do this very important work and for speaking out for truth when I know it's hard um, when many of your colleagues choose to remain quiet. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Confidential. If you'd like to learn more, share an idea for an episode, or become a sponsor, please visit us at autismconfidential.org. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual speakers. Content presented is for informational purposes only, and we do not provide any medical or legal advice.